right, Cubs fans, welcome to the latest edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast. For Andy Martinez, I'm Tony Andracchi here. And as always, we are sponsored by Wintrust. Head to Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly for more information. Andy, while we were at Cubs convention, we talked with a bunch of Cubs alumni. You've heard several of the podcasts or watched several of the podcasts so far. This one, Bobby Dernier, the original leadoff hitter, the, the first you go, we go before Dexter Fowler of 2016. But the guy who was the leadoff hitter for, for pretty much most of that that 1984 team that made it to the playoffs. It was a team that a lot of people felt like they were going to at least get to the World Series, maybe even win the World Series. First time they were in the playoffs after 1945. It was this very monumental team, I think, for a lot of the older generation of Cubs fans. It's a 40-year anniversary, so we had this chance to catch up with Bobby Dernier. But going into that interview that you conducted with him, what were you hoping to chat with him about? I was just getting excited to learn more about that team because I was not born in 1984. I was... a few years away from being born. So I have no recollection of that team. The only thing I remember or that I know, yeah, I know that'd be kind of <laughs> impressive actually. But the only thing I know about that team is what I've seen through highlights, what I've seen through, whether it's documentaries or different things like that. Like or hearing I, Sutcliffe talk about it. Or hearing yeah, Sut yeah. talk about the team. Yeah. Like that's all I knew about the team. Like there was no like firsthand direct experience and, and hearing someone other than Sut uh, give some more, give some more details on that '84 team, or some more behind the scenes. I thought was always going to be really exciting because you're right. This is a team that I do like. I know my dad really, really remembers '84 team and remembers Rick Sutcliffe. And I know I've talked to other Cubs fans who like that '84 team is their that that's their team, right? That's the team that they yeah. connect with a lot. And and to your point, a team that the Cubs were the lovable losers for the longest time. And that was the first season where it felt like they aren't just lovable losers. Like this team can actually do something. And I think that kind of has sprung on some of the, what we've seen from the Cubs over the last 40 years, really, where it's like they're not necessarily lovable losers. They're they're trying to win, and we're seeing that that uh, effect of 1984 to this day. Yeah, and I, I mean, to your point, too, just about like your parents' generation, like I know my mom and my uncles really grew up watching that 84 team, loved that, and Dernier was a huge part of that. Right. So Dernier holds a special place in the heart for, for them, too. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a cool conversation, but let's get to it right now. Bobby Dernier from the 1984 Cubs. Hi everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Andy Martinez here, joined by Bruce Levine, special guest Bobby Dernier. Bobby, thank you so much for, for stopping by. What's it like to be here at Cubs convention, what's it like to, to be amongst the fans? Well, 36 out of 38, uh, I've been here, Bruce knows, and uh, John McDonough started this way back in 86, and uh, you know, I, I look at it simply, um, I guess like this, you don't have to come, you get to, if you want to, and it becomes a reunion for us, and you know, with made a lot of friends with the fans over the years, so it's more than just Cub convention, you know, for us now, 40 years, my God, I mean, 84 club. So, uh, you know, it's just a great joy. And, and, uh, you know, I I just love the idea that that we can gather and you get this intimate, you know, sort of interaction. Going back to 1984, everybody remembers the big stars. They remember you too. But you were the igniter of that offense. You were the guy that took a lot of pitches. You were the guy that took walks. You kind of made things happen when you got on the bases. <clears throat> the pitchers had to uh, respect the fact that you could steal a base. So guys like Sandberg and Sarge and the rest of them got to see a lot of fastballs. How much pride do you take in being uh, the igniter of that offense? Well, you know, I'm a little biased, Bruce. You know that. And, and I think it's critical to a team uh, offensively to have that uh, winning kind of personality. You need a guy at the top 
that takes pride in being the leadoff guy. You're only that guy one time. And then the rest of the game, it happens how it happens. Well, Rhino and I had played in the, in the minor leagues, you know, three years together with Philadelphia. And so we kind of had the daily double thing going, but, you know, and we, we uh, reunited here immediately. We, you know, we kind of communicated uh, that, hey, let's just kind of do what we used to do. And, and uh, the idea being, if I'm on base, uh, Rhino's a better player. And if they're, if they're distracted by me, big mistake. Uh, to underestimate Rhino, and then you got the Sarge behind him. So that was our personality, set the table for the meat of the order. And Bull and Moreland and Ron Say, Jody, those big, you know, these guys were hitting with the bases loaded. So that's why we were such an offensive machine, really. You, you touched on Sandberg, and, and obviously with 84, the, the Sandberg game, you're nothing epitomized the, the, his breakthrough more than that Sandberg game against St. Louis. You were on second base in the 10th inning when he hits that home run. What's going through your head, and what was just that performance like overall? Well, uh, you know, of course, he tied it in the ninth. Um, yeah, no, it was only one way that could happen. Right. Well, he it's tied it in the ninth. Base. It made it 9-9. Nine, nine. Right. And then in the 10th, you know, they got two more and made it 11-9. So now we're down again. And I got I come up with two out and nobody on. So, you know, my job, I, I've got to I got to get this guy another at bat. So, you know, I'm, I'm – and I'm facing this suitor guy. So uh, he goes 3-0 and on me, which is, you can't walk me. Not with him on deck. That's, you know, that's just stupid. And even Bruce would have told you that. So he goes 3-0, and and I got to, now I got to take a couple pitches. Go to, make him go to 3-2. Make him earn it. And, of course, 3-1, you know, he throws me a strike, 3-0. 3-1 pitch was right there where I like it, Bruce. And, and I took it, and I was like, oh, no, you know. I mean, I get another good pitch to hit. So, anyway, and then he, you know, he's coming with that, and he's gonna. It looks like a strike, but it's gonna dive down and into me, and I took it, and it clanged off Porter's glove. Now here comes Sandberg again. So, you know, we had that one-two idea that that if I'm on base and I'm a threat, uh, which I was no threat in that inning, Bruce shouldn't have paid any attention to me because we're down two. Nonetheless. You know, Rhino did it. He did it again. When you when you look at that game for the '84 season, was that the point where you guys said, "Hey, there's there's some magic in this room"? You know, that was a good. I guess that was a good spot to pick. Um, honestly, though, I think we kind of we we knew that before uh, that game. Um, when Sarge and I came over in late March, and we knew who we were coming to join, uh, had played with a lot of them before, and we knew who they, we knew, we knew who Ron Say and Leon Durham, Jody Davis. I played against Sutcliffe in high school. You know, Eckersley. We had, we knew who we were, and we were kind of a, we were kind of cast off. You know, we were cast off from other organizations, but we didn't feel slighted. We felt blessed. We're now, you know, we're, we got a chance to do something special. And although we didn't quite complete the deal, 40 years of, you know, nearly of Cub conventions and stuff, I still get the favorite son treatment. Yeah, you're, you're not here 40 years later because you're still beautiful. You're still beautiful in our hearts, but none of us are still beautiful in exterior-wise, but the thoughts will be there for 40 more and 40 more after that. That's how important that team was. It is, and it's a, obviously the generational loyalty here it's like no other, and we value that, I think most of us. Great-grandfather to great-granddaughter and everybody in between, so 
you know, one common denominator I'll mention when we go back to what we were talking about. One thing we need to win, I, I, I love Dexter Fowler. Having a leadoff guy in center field that you can count on every day, you know, Tochman uh, or, you know, whoever, Nico, I know has done a little. Uh, I like having that top of the lineup guy. So whatever we do with signing people and whatnot, would you please have me a leadoff guy who's to, who plays every day? And, and, and I like our chances. Um, you touched on it a little bit with the 84 team and, and the, the run you guys went on, but what was it like being like playing in those meaningful games as the season went on when you're accumulating wins? And I know you said you guys felt like you could you could do it earlier on, but the fans started to gain that belief after that Sandberg game. What was it like playing at a Wrigley Field where the games matter, there's a chance to go into to the playoffs, something that hadn't been seen in, in a long time at Wrigley Field up until that point? Yeah, and Bruce will remember, you know, in, in, uh, along about in May, into maybe early June, it started to swell. Wrigley was, you know, now a tougher ticket. And the, the probably the most relevant thing that happened uh, when you look back from now is that the rooftops started to happen. There were lawn chairs and barbecue grills and people on the roof. And we had people coming into the ballpark early for batting practice, which hadn't been going on. So you could feel the swell. And, and of course, it was, it was a hard ticket to get and even back then you know remember the bleachers were a well-kept secret a cheap seat which of course we know is a premium seat now a uh, great view uh, to watch at Wrigley. Box seats were six dollars and fifty cents back in 1984 so that just gives you a perspective of what's different. As far as winning that division the Eastern Division in Pittsburgh I'm there with you guys you guys celebrate for a while. There's only 8,000 in the stands, but it seemed like 5,000 were Cub fans. And then coming out of the dugout and watching the fans celebrate on the big screen, Arnie Harris set it up so that you could see the fans celebrating at Wrigley. What was that like, and what type of impression does that leave you again 40 years later? Yeah, I was watching a, uh, a video. I don't know if it was YouTube or off a marquee or something they had a and they, and they showed that uh, and it reminded me I'd seen it before and uh, it just reminded me of a boy I wish we would have been at home number one you know and I really got to witness the whole thing in person but it reminded me that you know this 39 year wait in that era uh, it was really a cool time to be here for you younger folks we we went and haven't won anything in, you know, since 1945. And the next year, the Bears win everything. And some guy named Michael was dribbling down the street. So it was a pretty good time to be here in Chicago. So, you know, it, it was, it, it was a more than just, you know, finally we won something. Uh, it was more about the kind of the generational excitement around the city for sports. And uh, we, we were part of that, of course, and kind of ignited it. But it, it, it was really, it was really unique. So you uh, going into that, going into uh, more about the postseason that year in '84. You mentioned Dexter Fowler, leadoff hitter. He hits the leadoff home run in Game Seven. You had a leadoff home run. You're the only two guys to have done that in Cubs history. What's that like? What was that like for you? And what well, I'm was sure like, like to see Dexter do it too. Yeah, I'm sure like Dexter. Uh, you know, I've been looking for that at bat since I was about 10 years old in the backyard. You know, you, you kind of pretend and. Um, I can tell you honestly, I, I probably only slept maybe an hour the night before. I was so jacked, you know, can't wait to play. But it didn't matter. I felt like I slept for eight hours. And, you know, fortunately, you 
tried to throw a breaking ball. I was the first ball fastball hitter. They knew that. He threw a breaking ball and broke around the plate. Ball one, and now I'm I'm hunting the fastball. And you know he got he, he sent me one up there. It was up and out over the plate, and the wind was blowing out about 15. You, you know, and I wasn't a power hitter, but I knew once I hit it and it was up in that wind, it's, it's one to nothing Cubs. Now now deal with that next guy. And. Oh, sorry, Bruce, but it's just then after that, I mean, obviously the emotion, the every we've talked about it, and you couldn't sleep. What's it like rounding the bases? What's it like with the crowd? What's just that? Take us through that emotion. Yeah, I can give you this. When I came around second and I started to head toward third, you could feel the, the vibration of the eruption, you know, the noise. It Don't let players tell you that they don't hear that stuff because we hear every bit of it, okay? And, and, and in that moment at Wrigley, 39 years of waiting for a playoff game, you know, uh, postseason, I don't think it can get much louder. Although I did, I was in the, in the yard the night that uh, Montero hit that home run in the playoffs, and I, I, I heard that roar. That was pretty, pretty big. With the, with the good came the bad during the, that 84 playoff. And uh, a lot of people say there's no such thing as momentum in baseball. But if they were there with me in San Diego, with you guys covering that, they would have seen that there's such a thing as momentum and a, and a crowd difference. Can you talk about how loud that crowd was and how sustained it was for their team once Gary Templeton came out and started waving the, the white towel? Yeah, well, first of all, San Diego, Jack Murphy Stadium back then, it was a, I think they'd held maybe 60, 60,000 bigger stadium than Wrigley. Um, you know, it was, uh, when you're down 2-0, the fans are just looking for something, right? And if we could have held off that something, that momentum, and, and, and kept a hold of that, I, I think that series, you know, it ends in three games. But they got out early on us. I think Templeton hurt us. I remember I was playing uh, slightly toward left center and he, he had a ball sliced away from me away from and and towards gary in between us couldn't get there and it scored their first run game the lead so that game kind of went by the wayside but we had the lead in games four and five and so momentum came back bruce uh jody and i remember bull durham was they were hitting home runs and uh you know we we had the lead we just we just didn't finish the deal and and uh you know it's still it still hurts. I, I can tell you that. With with um, everything surrounding the, the the team, the Cubs, the the franchise, what? Uh, how long did you guys like think about like, man, what what if it would have been us? Like, how how often do you guys think about what if it would have been us that won the World Series? Well, you know that that was the whole reason you're out there, of course. But and we understood the you know the history. I mean, you know we. We win the whole thing, uh, you know, that changes your life. And so, you know, although you're not playing with that in mind, I mean, you're focused and, and, and so on. But um, to this day, I, I, the great thing about it is despite that, we helped to set the, the table for the 16 team that did win it. So I'm grateful for that. I uh, got to be at all the playoff games and World Series in, in uh, 2016. It was my honeymoon. I got married on Sunday, October 2nd. Uh, prior to it, I was up here doing Fox 32 with Lou Canellis and pre and post game. Rhino's with Comcast doing some stuff with David Kaplan. We're on the field. 
And when, when game seven ended and it's two in the morning and raining, who do I walk out of the stadium with? Ryan Sandberg. So it all kind of tied to bow, and, and we're just happy we're off, you know. The thing about what you guys did and what Dallas Green did coming to Chicago was give Cub fans a feeling that we deserve to win. We deserve to be winners. We are winners. That didn't change from 2000, from 2000, uh, 1984 forward. There was a different attitude. Building the new tradition is what Dallas Green talked about. How proud are you to this day of that being a part of that, bringing that to Chicago and Wrigley Field? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Dallas Green. He was a godfather to a lot of us that were young Phillies, Rhino included. Uh, Sarge, Boa, or, or you know, Moreland were all very uh, influenced by Dallas. The guy was a just a presence, you know. I mean, it was like having John Wayne in the room. I mean, the guy had a lot of, I don't know, he just had that thing, you know. So you feared him, but you respected him and loved him. And so I think with that in mind, uh, you can't talk about the 84 Cubs, Bruce, as you know, without mentioning Dallas Green, the guy, like Theo. I mean, he was a guy you wanted to play for, you know. We so wanted to win it, in large part for him, and the effort that he had made to get us together. I mean, Rhino was an oh by the way in a Boa trade, and I was an oh by the way in a Matthews trade. Well, Dallas knew who I was, and he knew who Rhino was, because he was a farm director in Philadelphia as we grew. So all that kind of, you know, it puts a bow on that, you know, but Dallas Green will be, I'll look forward to seeing him in heaven. They were all by the ways to the outside world, but they weren't to, to Dallas Green. And it clearly worked out for the Chicago Cubs. Um, was there a moment from the 84 season that maybe uh, fans might not think of that is one of your favorite moments from, from that year? Oh, boy, you know, there's, there's how about so the How about the Mets series in August? You guys are trying to get the lead. All of a sudden, you have a four-game series with the Mets. Talk a little bit about Moreland getting hit. Uh, Ed Lynch, obviously, eventually the general manager of the Cubs. Former teammate, that. yeah. And what type of what that weekend did for you guys? Yeah, and that team was obviously they were coming. You know, Keith Hernandez. It was right before they got Gary Carter, and I think he came the following year, and, and that really changed that team. But they were already a threat. They had a young Dwight Gooden who was just horribly nasty on me and others. But uh, we knew that they were the ones closest. Throughout the year, we were battling them. But we also had our eyes on Cardinals and the Phillies. Uh, you know, the year before, I was in Philly, and we were in the World Series. And so we knew, you know, you had to beat. You had to knock them off the hill. And so, but the Mets... They immediately to us were, they were on our heels, and we knew that if we got them, we had already kind of taken care of the other two. Uh, but one game or one day, I'll, I'll tell you, that Sunday in St. Louis before we clenched, we had a doubleheader, hot, like 105 degrees. And uh, that doubleheader day, I think Matthews drove in five runs in two games, and we, we swept that doubleheader to create a, you know, a tie, guaranteed. And then Monday became you know, the, the clincher. But that, that Sunday in St. Louis, you know, it was the Cardinals. I mean, you know, and, and, and there were a million Cub fans there. If we could, only, if we could have clinched it on that day, that would have been pretty good. It was, there was a rain out on Saturday, so you had to play two Sunday. Then we all go to, go to uh, Pittsburgh. Um, before the 
you guys clinch. You got Sutcliffe on the mound. He was automatic. Was there any doubt in your mind that was going to be the night? None. Zero. Uh, now, I, I got to tell you, I, was, I lost 11 pounds the day before in that doubleheader on the turf in St. Louis, so I was pretty pooped. But I wasn't missing that game because everybody knew that was hopefully the game we were going to jog off with the W. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Once Sut had the lead uh, early in the game, I think he only faced 28 hitters that day, if I recall. Gave up a run and somebody hit a triple. But he was lights out. And, uh, you know, I played against Rick in high school. I go way back with the big redhead and uh, love him to death. He's in the house somewhere. I'll see him in a little while. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I can tell you this, one final note on that. You could unplug any player from our starting lineup, and that team's never remembered. Or you could unplug one of our pitchers from that staff, and, and 84 is probably not heard of. That's how significant each guy had to, you know, a, a contributing role with that team. And Bruce will tell you, uh, we truly were, because it was a different guy all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you'll mention the name Rich Bordy today. And uh, other than the fans from that time, they'll go, who's Rich Bordy? And, and you'll say, well, he was as important to our team as anybody that played that Absolutely. year. Absolutely. Was, what was it like watching uh, Sutcliffe that year? I mean, obviously, he was- At the he, Cub convention or? or he, well, both, maybe, yeah, yeah. No, but that season in 84, what was that like? And, and, and I, I know you mentioned they were so crucial, but he was especially uh, on a different level that year. Yeah, well, I knew who we were getting, I mean, because I had grown up with him. He was the number one pick for the Dodgers, and he's a year older than me, so I can say I'm little brother talking here, but I knew how difficult it was to face. Uh, and if I had to pick two guys, I'd take uh, lefty, I'd take Steve Carlton, and on the right side, I'll take Rick Sutcliffe, and I'll go play whoever you want to play. Uh, he's, he's just a, a true gamer, a great teammate. He'll take his shirt off for you and, and do anything for you. His wife, Robin's a wonderful lady, and daughter, Shelby. I, I, you know, I think a lot of the Sutcliffe story, he's, he's a special guy. You, you look at coming over with Gary Matthews, and it was so significant. But Sarge took it to another level, okay, as a leader. He had never walked more than 60 times in his career. In, in 1984, he walked over 100 times. Talk about him just taking charge of what he felt the responsibility was for him on that team. Well, and I go back to 81 when Gary joined the Phillies. I was a young guy. Rhino and I were in AAA, and we got this Matthews guy from Atlanta who had come through San Francisco, you know, behind Willie Mays. He was with Gary Maddox and Bobby Bonds. He, but he had a reputation of being kind of a badass in the league. Like, don't mess with this guy. You know, he, he's serious. And, uh, that's why, you know, Pete Rose nicknamed him the Sarge. And he told me, that, well, why do you nickname him the Sarge, Pete? Well, because the Sarge is in charge. And on the field now, on and off, different story off the field. Gentle as a, you know, kitty cat. He, he, you know, he's real picky about, you know, making sure his clothes are right, he smells good, you know. He's, he's, a, he's a different guy, one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. But on the field, within the game, one of the toughest competitors I was ever around. What's it like being in a clubhouse on a team on the on the plane in the field, where there is that camaraderie, where everyone likes each other, where you're all pulling on the same rope? What's that? It's, it doesn't happen all the time in baseball. No, and, and, and the beauty of it is we've remained friends 
to today. I mean, we're still close. I mean, Jody and and, 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 and Rhino and all of them, Sarge, everybody has an intimate relationship, you know, that with that we share and we I think we value more than any other team I ever played on. I mean, obviously I love the Phillies and I have a great relationship there with a lot of guys and a lot of stories, but this is just, it's a different level of special. I was only on one plane ride with a team and unfortunately it was after game five of 1984. Can you talk a little bit about the only guy I remember saying a word was Sarge saying, hey, guys, nobody died here, okay? But I never remember being on any type of flight that was close to that without any sound. Yeah, it was deafening. The sound was so silent. It was deafening. And you didn't want to say anything, really. You didn't want to disturb the, you know, the solemn. You know, everybody felt the same. I mean, but yet we could also, we could find a way to, to find joy in the fact that, hey, we had a wonderful year together. It didn't end like we wanted it. Uh, but respect-wise and otherwise, I mean, those guys are brothers in arms forever, and, and that's not going to change. We just helped set the table for the 2016 team. Some people say the sort of Cub Nation began maybe in 84. I like to reach back to 69. I'm a little partial to those guys, too. Uh, but, it, you know, it's just good to be part of the story, and uh, I think we have a pretty significant part of that. When the Cubs finally won in 16, you touched on it. You were you were at a lot of the games. It was your honeymoon. But what was it like uh, interacting with some of your old teammates after they had won? Like, what was it? What was your guys' conversations and reaction like? Yeah, well, walking out of the stadium after Rizzo did this, I, I walk out at 2 in the morning with Rhino. It doesn't get any better than that, you know? I mean, and then probably uh, just watching a movie, you know, when we got to that moment when Rajay went deep and the whole stadium was like, all the Cub fans were like, oh, no, you know. And even I was like, oh, no, you know. But I still had faith. That team, they just had that resilience. You could feel it. I mean, I watched them all year like you guys, and, and I thought there's no way they're going to be denied here. And the perfect guy was at the plate when you needed the big hit, Zobrist. And then Montero got maybe the biggest hit in Cub history as well, kind of a tie for first because it ended up, you know, they scored one. So. I don't know, those, those, all those moments along the way from stopping at exits on the way to Cleveland a couple of times and there's Cub fans everywhere at the truck stop and, you know, I can go on and on. I mean, you'll never forget the moment and you'll never forget exactly where you were standing and who you were standing with or sitting with when the Cubs finally won the World Series. So. Yep. Um, it, it must have been special to share those moments, though, with, with your, with, like, when you're with, when you're with Sarge, um, what was it like after the 16th series to talk to them about that? Yeah, well, and, and you know, the, the final note was, you know, that, that little thing right there. Uh, the Ricketts family is so generous, and Crane Kenny, and, and uh, back then Theo was here, and Jed, and of course, uh, you know, they, they set us up uh, a second shelf, guys. You know, of course, the Hall of Famers, you know. But none of us suspected that they would go there, and they I've, did. So. I've got great news for you. <clears throat> A leadoff man, center fielder who can steal bases, Pete Crow Armstrong is on his way. And we saw him a little bit at the end of last year, but you're going to see a lot more of him in 2024. He's going to be somebody that I think you're going to enjoy watching. I've, I've got a peek at him, Bruce. I've seen a little bit on tape, too. Uh, Good-looking young player. Uh, defense looks like he really loves to make plays. I love that. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a role for you, kid. 
you know, you got to come up and, and take the job at some point. That's the rules of Major League Baseball. Serve notice. Gary Maddox told me as a young player, you can't have my job as center fielder in Philadelphia, but you could create your own job. Maybe I learn how to play right field for now. So I did. And then I end up over here in center. So, um, uh, Do you have a, a player on the current team that you like watching? Like, is there? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm, a, I'm an Ian Happ guy. He's one of our fellow Gold Glover outfielder guys. You know, there's only four of us. So welcome to Ian. And I'm, I'm a Nico guy. But I'm, I, you know, I'm, I always pay attention to the leadoff guy and the center fielder. I can't help it. So Toshman, you know, that play he made last year in St. Louis was, I mean, that was just unbelievable. So, that, you know, but there's reasons to love, you know, all of them. I mean, back in, the, in, in a few years ago, you know, I was a Dexter Fowler guy. So, but I love Rizzo and Bryant, too. I got to have all of them. You played in all the big league parks during your career. What is it about Wrigley Field? I mean, you know, people on the East Coast, it's Fenway, but we look at Wrigley as a more beautiful version of what Fenway could ever be all about. What What is it that you can tie your hat, tie yourself to and say, look, Wrigley is better because... Well, number one, if you, you know, if you have any sense of history and, and you're a sports lover, and I was a 10-year-old, I still got him in me, and I loved every sport. When I show up at Wrigley for the first time, even as a young guy in 1980 with Philadelphia, and then when I come over and I'm in a Cub uniform and I'm out there every day, all I could think about at times was in daydreaming. You know, you're like, wow, you know, Gail Sayers used to run around here too, you know, Butkus. And, and then, oh, yeah, Babe Ruth stood across the plate in the same dirt. You know, I mean, come on, uh, you know, look where you, you can feel it, you know. So I have DNA all over the place out there along with many others and, and over, a, you know, a century plus of time. And you can't say that in Colorado or Arizona, you know. So this is the most unique. Boston, a lot of great history, no doubt. Yankees, my wife's from New York, you know, she's a Yankee fan. Now she's a Cub fan, but the idea is that all that, if you're aware of it, I hope it juices you up. You know, it did me, and I think I'm not alone. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a blast having you. It's been a blast reminiscing on, on 84 and some, and some of your time with the Cubs. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, and it's always great to reunite with this guy. Thank you. Get your Wintrust exclusive debit card. Get your Cubs card. Ooh, I'll take one. How much? Actually, they pay you $300. You heard right. Get a $300 bonus when you open a Cubs checking account with Wintrust. Enjoy all perks and purchase with pride every time with your Wintrust Cubs debit card. $300? Get your exclusive card at Wintrust.com slash Cubs. Only $100 required to open. No monthly minimum balance and no monthly maintenance fees. Member FDIC and equal housing lender. All right, welcome back into the Cubs Weekly Podcast for Andy M. Tony. And Andy, we just heard that conversation with Bobby Dernier, but what did you like most? What did you take away from that chat? There was quite a bit in there, and the things that I loved were the Sandberg game, his recollection of that, and then just how, like, he is a Cubs fan. Like, he lived through 2016, excuse me, and he followed the 2023 team super closely. He just, like, loves the Cubs, and I think – that's kind of common amongst a lot of the alumni. Yeah. Like we, like all of them have talked about their 2016 story, where they were, how they felt. But it's just 
also like kind of cool to hear that that they, they still think that i don't know if that's necessarily something you get at other places right where it's like a guy might have played for a certain team for two years or maybe they maybe don't care necessarily too much about that team but it seems like every time you talk to a cubs alumni whether they played for a season or 15 seasons with the cubs like they have this affection for the team that i think is is really really cool to see yeah honestly i was most interested in that in talking to these alumni but one of the main questions i wanted to ask all of them was where were you in 2016? Yeah. How'd you feel? What emotions did you have? And was there a little part of you that was disappointed that you were never a part of the team? Because all these guys that we talked to were part of playoff teams, like right. Ramos in 03, 07, 08, Giovanni Soto in 07, 08, of course, Bobby Dunier, Jody Davis, 84. Like these guys were were parts of of the 2016 team, or sorry, of these playoff teams and what their perspective was in 2016. And I was surprised to hear that these guys weren't really that disappointed that they weren't a part of it, that they had kind of maybe come to peace or whatever with that aspect that they weren't able to win the World Series here. They wanted to, of course, that right. was like a, a goal. And I think especially when you get to, to guys later on in the 2000s and stuff, that was part of the attraction of coming to the Cubs was you want to be a part of the team that wins, especially after the White Sox and Red Sox won. You're the right. longest drought out there. You want to be a part of that team. And it was certainly like this alluring aspect of it. But yeah, to hear from all of these guys, to, to, to see how they lived and breathed. And, you know, and Brian McRae, the, the other podcast that we have out, he, he had this text chat with a bunch of guys from the mid-2000s that he played on throughout 2016. And they were blowing up the phone just like a bunch of fans were. And these are guys who played right. for the Cubs. But they know, they feel the fan base. They know what it meant to this team. And I just thought that was such a cool aspect that we learned from all of these interviews. Yeah, it was so cool to see Dernier just talk about how much of, how cool he, lo- how much he loved Dexter Fowler and how he he really liked Mike Talkman in the leadoff spot because like that was that's him right that's like that's what he did and and seeing that lineage if you want to call it that uh, and and how it's kind of gone from Dernier to 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 Talkman in 2023 like just seeing that I thought was really really fun and, and cool. Yeah, for sure. So we'll continue to roll out these interviews uh, throughout the rest of the Cubs weekly podcast throughout the spring. Uh, just stay tuned wherever you get your podcast or check us out in video form on the Marquee Sports Network app. For Andy, I'm Tony. Thanks as always for tuning in.